Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Terry Lovelace. Uh, some of you may have seen him on TV. Uh, he's been on a couple of TV shows. Uh, he's been had an alien uh, implant put in his leg, um, and he also has a book out called The Devil's Den. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks very much, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is fantastic. So before we jump into the, the abduction part of your story, um, one of the things that, that I really find fascinating about you is that you were also in the Air Force before all this happened. I was. Um, just by way of introduction, a brief bio. Um, yeah, I joined the Air Force right out of high school, 1973, as an enlisted guy. Uh, and I spent six years on active duty uh, as a medic, um, EMT, first responder. Worked out of uh, Whiteman Air Force Base Hospital Emergency Room, uh, southeast of Kansas City, uh, in the middle of, well, it was in the middle of nowhere in the 1970s. It's built up quite a bit now. Uh, the base is still around. It's a mm -hmm. it's uh, no longer a SAC base. It's now home to the B-2 bombers. So that's their their home base. And I was there from, like I say, 73 to 79, all six years of my enlistment I spent there. Interesting. And um, during your time in the Air Force, did you see anything unusual then? You know, I did. I did. Um, in 1975, we had an ambulance run to a, um, to a missile silo. Um, back then, Whiteman Air Force Base was a SAC base, Strategic Air Command Base. A nu nuclear base, and it had um, <coughs> a B-52s armed with nukes and uh, uh, a squadron of uh, Minutemen II ICBM missiles spread out all over the countryside. Right. And uh, one night in 75, April 75, I believe, April, January, January, bitter cold January 9, 1975, um, my buddy Toby and I, we worked the night shift in the emergency room. And we got a call about uh, 2 a.m. about a uh, guy, a missile mechanic, uh, who had been doing maintenance, routine maintenance on a missile, and he fell. And, uh, you know, I thought he broke a leg or something, uh, you know. So um, they were a little scant on uh, details. So, you know, we hopped in the ambulance and... Um, the missile, the launch control facility was 10 miles away out in the middle of farmland. Uh, that's where they space them. They space them all over the countryside. So, uh, you know, they're harder to take out that way. Mm -hmm. You know, on hardened silos that you'd have to make a direct hit on just about to take it out. So we, uh, we drove and uh, I drove and we saw this, uh, it's the middle of farmland. It's like, you know, a million acres of corn or something <laughs> and we saw this weird glow on the horizon uh kind of an orange throbbing kind of glow it was crazy and uh um we came to a roadblock and there was a we knew all, most all the security police guys 
And there's a guy there sitting in his car drinking coffee. I'm sure he was supposed to be outside, but man, it was like four degrees outside. <laughs> decent wind chill. So I rolled my window down and I said, hey, what's up at Q05? And he said, uh, ah, some dude fell and, and uh, broke his ankle or something. He said, I don't think it's anything big. And I said, well, what's with all the, what, what had happened was there were like 10 security police cars there. And they had these uh, orange uh, rotating overhead flashing lights. Right. And uh, there were 10 cars there and they all had their flashers on and they were all out of sync. And um, they were all their cars were running because it was so cold. There was this big cloud of exhaust fumes and all those overhead lights lit up that cloud of exhaust like <laughs> a big orange cloud. And it was just just spooky looking. And uh, anyway, he didn't have a clue what was going on, but he uh, pulled back his truck and let us pass. And we got there and there was a, um, you know, and I can't recall, uh, I say in my book, I don't remember his rank. I, I think he was a captain, but he could have been a first lieutenant uh, standing in the middle of the road in a parka with a radio in his hand. Uh, and he comes over and he says, uh, you know, your man's alive. He's walking and talking, um, but nobody goes in or out until I authorize it. So park your ambulance over there, stay in your ambulance and stay off the radio. I'm like, all right, yeah, whatever you say. Yes, sir. You know, mm -hmm. so we pull over and, uh, you know, we're ordered to stay inside, inside the ambulance. And my, my buddy, Toby, uh, is, is frustrated. He's like, man, I want to see what's going on. I'm like, you know, no, you know, we're ordered not to go out. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, I want to see what's going on. So he threw on a park and he gets out and uh, he's gone about three or four minutes. Then he yanks open my, um, the driver's side of the ambulance, yanks open my door, grabs me by the shoulders and is pulling me out of the ambulance and he's screaming, you got to see this. You have got to see this, man. And I'm like, well, calm down, man. Let me grab my parka. So I grabbed my parka. I threw it on. And we got outside. And I see this captain lieutenant with his head. He's looking straight up. And uh, I didn't see it at first. And what it was was there was this thing called a black diamond. I called it a black diamond. That was my right. name for it. It was very similar to what they reported at Rundlesham. It was a multifaceted matte black object about the size of a full-size van that had these odd angles and facets all over it uh weird weird cuts and curves and um it's just an odd looking thing and it was uh just suspended right above the cap that's over the launch tube for the icbm missile uh, about 50 feet in the air and it's absolutely dead still and all the all the security police guys have their searchlight from their cars trained on it. So it's lit up. Uh, but like I say, it's not reflected. It's matte black, but we can see it perfectly. There's no markings on it. There's no rivets, no, uh, it's just metal of some kind, uh, painted matte black. And um, I'm standing next to this lieutenant expecting him to yell at us for being outside. And, uh, we're watching this thing and then it went it, and it just shot off. It just shot off toward the horizon and was gone. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and smiled. I looked at him and smiled. And, you know, for a minute it was kind of, uh, it was just kind of two human beings having this really interesting experience. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of snapped back into his role. We snapped back to our, into our respective roles. And he said, you know, 
well, I'll, I'll get the gate open for you and you can take your man away. Uh, so this, this poor guy that fell and broke his ankle, uh, he's sitting in this little trapezoid shaped room where they have the elevator that takes you down to the bottom of the missile so you can do maintenance on it. And uh, he's seated in this little room with no windows with his foot elevated on a trash can. And he knows something crazy is going on outside and he can't see a thing. And so, you know, we, we pick him up, we take him back to the hospital. And he's like, well, what was it? What was it? What's going on out there, man? And we, uh, we told him the whole story, what we saw. And we got him to the hospital. And uh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't say a word about his ankle, but he, he really wanted to know what was going on, you know, because he heard, uh, <laughs> you know, all the craziness outside. So we got to the hospital and the hospital commander was there waiting for us. Um, and he asked us to come back to his office. And this was, you know, he was in uniform. It was, you know, four o'clock in the morning or something. And uh, he called us. And we knew the guy. He was a nice guy, young guy, a uh, good guy. And he called us in the office, his office, shut the door. And uh, he said, well, how did your, how did your, uh, how did your run go? And I said, just fine. And he, uh, he said, well, can I see your report? Did you write a clean report? By clean report, he means sticking to the medical facts and, mm-hmm. not, you know, other observations. <laughs> So I handed it to him and uh, curiously, he made a, a couple copies on a, on a photocopy machine. Mm-hmm. He threw the original in his drawer and he took the photocopies <clears throat> and with a black magic marker, he redacted out all of the relevant times, the time that we left the hospital, time we arrived on the scene, time, time we picked up the patient, et cetera, time we arrived back at base. Um, and that struck me as odd. Uh, and he gave me one of the redacted copies and said, turn that in. Um, which means I just throw it in a basket. I never see a human being. I don't know who picks them up. So um, he said, then he got a, a serious tone and he said, look, boys, I know uh, uh, you saw something pretty strange out there. I want, I want to tell you, you know, that was a prototype helicopter. And uh, we both say, like, yes, sir. And, uh, and we're thinking, you know, who are you trying to fool? You know, you, you weren't out there. You don't know what we saw. And it was no helicopter. Uh, but you know what? We didn't think it was a UFO. Um, neither one of us did. We, honest to God, thought it was some kind of uh, Soviet spy thing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, because I, I mean, as a kid, I'd seen uh, flying saucers twice, once when I was eight and again when I was 11. So I considered myself to be an expert on extraterrestrial vehicles, and they <laughs> were saucers. And this wasn't a saucer. Here go, it must have been something else. So, um yeah, so that was the first odd thing we saw in the sky. Um, and I might mention, too, that this is just hearsay. I never witnessed this myself, but the security police, uh, the guys that guarded the bunkers where they kept the nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. told us that, uh, and we knew these guys. They were solid guys. They wouldn't they wouldn't make up a story like this. They told us, and I, and I believe them, that they would see a uh, an orange ring fly over the uh, bunker or an orange disc, one or the other, and it would stop and it would shoot down a laser beam, a red laser beam um, into the into the bunker. And, uh, you know, when they saw this, they, you know, had a protocol they had to go through and people they had to call. And, uh, you know, obviously it was a big secret. They couldn't talk about it, but, you know, you know, it, you know, word gets out. It's like the <laughs> hospital commander told us, you know, uh, look, guys, that's a secret helicopter, so you can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I know he says, I know you're two smart guys. I know you're not going to go out and talk about it. Like, 
Yes, sir. Absolutely not. We told everybody we knew. <laughs> we couldn't wait to talk about it. And uh, um, because we didn't, we didn't really think it was a UFO, to be honest with you. Uh, and that was in 1975. You know. Wow. So, 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 um, you got, so you thought it was like some kind of uh, Russian thing? We did. You know, we thought it'd be like, uh, you know, CCCP on the side of it or something. Because uh, we had, uh, my friend Toby was, um, he wanted to be a, an astronomer or a cosmologist. And he, uh, he was really familiar with the night sky. He, he like, knew all the constellations and uh, um, he could time when uh, satellites would come over. And we had, uh, because we were a nuclear base, I guess we had, you know, Russian satellites over us all the time. So, um, yeah, we, we, we didn't think it was extraterrestrial at all. Hmm. Uh, but a year and a half later, we'd have an experience, and there was no doubt what we saw then was right. extraterrestrial. And, and this was with the same guy, Toby, right? Yeah. You know, to Toby and I worked uh, the night shift together in the ER for three years. Uh, we were best of friends. Uh, his wife and my wife were friends. I was 22 at the time. Toby was 23. We were both married and both living on in family housing. So we were living on the base. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, uh, you know, we did everything together. We uh, barbecued, uh, play cards, uh, work together. Just, uh, you know, it, it's, um, you've got to have a good mix. You got to have a, you got to have somebody you can get along with. If you're going to work a long night shift where maybe nothing will happen yeah. or maybe all hell will break loose, you never know. Um, so we, we were a good mix personality wise. We got along just fine. So he came up to me one night in April of 1977 and he said, Hey man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. Like, <laughs> Are you serious? I mean, I, I'm Toby. I, I, remember, I told him, I said, you know, I, I'm from St. Louis city. I know I've never been camping in my life and I know you're from Flint, Michigan. And I would wager to say, you've never been camping in your life. So, you know, what, what, what's up with this? And uh, he actually made a pretty good argument. He said, you know, well, look, he says, you know, you're, you're an amateur photographer, which I was at the time. I had a little dark room set up in my house. Um, and he liked to watch the night sky. Mm -hmm. and he says, let's go. I, I found that there's this place called Devil's Den. It's like six and a half hour drive south. And I'm like, look, you know, we're in the middle of National Forest here. What are we going to drive all the way down there for? And he said, well, you know, listen, he said, the journey's half the fun. It'll be a road trip. And he says, there's this elevated plateau there. And uh, we got to find it, but uh, it'd be a great place to camp instead of the campground where you got people to the right of you, people to the left of you. He said, if we can find this place, we got it to ourselves. And, uh, you know, it'll be a great time. And he says, you can photograph wildlife because I found that, you know, there's if you have a camera and you want to use it, there's not much you can, you can do with it on a nuclear base. <laughs> so uh, I thought, yeah, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's a good idea. We didn't, uh, we didn't have the slightest idea of what we were doing, but you know, camping's not rocket science. You right. know, you get a couple inflatable air mattresses uh, at the time, a $10 uh, Kmart tent and a cooler full of snacks and food and, uh, and you're good to go. Yeah. So we went in June of 77. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, it started out just a bunch of hilarity and a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. We really were enjoying ourselves. The road trip was fun. Um, I realized halfway down, I forgot my camera. I left my camera bag sitting on the kitchen table. 
Uh, along with, I left the camp axe, a, a camping lantern and a gallon of fuel sitting in my garage. And that's, you know, that's not just, that's just not me. Right. I, that, that puzzles me. But, you know, it wasn't all, it wasn't a disaster. I mean, my friend Toby had a camera with him. Uh, I mean, it wasn't my camera, but, you know, we had a camera nonetheless. Um, so we kind of got off to a weird start. Uh, Toby forgot a few things, too. And uh, we found our way down there and went into the park, dodged the ranger station and uh, found a paved road. And um, my friend Toby says, I think we want to head to the north, uh, northwest. And I'm like, look, man, I don't know. When we drove the, when we were in an ambulance crew, I always drove, he always navigated because he had this unerring sense of direction. And I had zero. (laughs) That's like my wife. (laughs) Oh, man. This guy, I mean, you could spin him around in a chair with a blindfold and he could point north. I mean, uh, so, you know, I, I, I never questioned his directions because it was always right. And uh, I'll be darned, he, uh, we, we uh, took this paved road that turned to gravel that pretty much turned to two ruts in the road. And then we came to a chain across the road uh, with this really sternly worded, uh, keep out, do not enter, no hunting, no camping, no fishing, uh, no admittance, no nothing. And uh, I told Toby, I said, I'm going to turn around and go back and find another way. And he, he, was, he was observant. And he said, no, no, no. He says, I got this. And he hops out of the car. And what they had done is they had taken that chain and made a loop out of it on the end mm-hmm. and locked it with a with a padlock and then they just draped it over the opposing post on his side of the road mm-hmm. on a nail so he hops out of the car and goes and picks up this chain and you know chink drops it to the ground and uh you know woohoo, we drove in you know we felt like lewis and clark now you know <laughs> and uh the the road Everything looked the same. I mean, there was there were no landmarks of any kind. There was just uh, just trees. And uh, I had a guy who um, uh, was a uh, cartographer for the government um, write to me, and he got the images off of Google Earth, and he sent me a map that shows mm-hmm. the number of turns, and there's something like 20 turns you have to make, left or right to navigate to this place. And if you make either, any one of these turns wrong, um, you're pretty much not, you're not going to get there. You know, you're going to have to retrace and, and start over. So amazingly, having never been there before, and um, you couldn't see the thing because this plateau was uh, flat on top, like most plateaus. And it, um, but it was level with the tops of the trees. So unless you were right on top of the thing, it was invisible. You couldn't see it. So, uh, and it's still there, by the way. Um, I don't know if I sent you any images or not. Did I, have a uh, to I do have some images, yes, that Michelle sent me uh, of, of the Devil's Den satellite image and um, some of the pictures of the bruises and the x-rays of the implants. Yeah, if you look at those um, satellite photographs, you can see um, you can see the shape of the thing from the one directly overhead. It's kind of roughly triangular. Yeah. Um, and from the side, you can see that it's elevated and level with the tops of the trees. Mm-hmm. So um, we found the place and drove up. Uh, 
and like I say, you know, it's it's still just a dirt road to get to the top. Um, I mean, it was you know better suited for a Land Rover than my 1966 Impala. But uh, <laughs> we're seriously, we're we're lucky we didn't get out of there with a broken axle or something. But we got on top of this thing, and it was just beautiful. It was just gorgeous. I, I call it in the book. I call it a meadow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just this big grassy field uh, covered with late blooming wildflowers, and uh, uh, it was just it was just gorgeous. And uh, Toby said, "You know, let's let's set up camp over here by the by the by the edge." I wanted to, I wanted to set up camp in the middle, and I'm glad we didn't um, because. Well, you'll see why in a minute. But um, so we ended up setting camp up, uh, kind of off to the side, right at the edge, uh, which wasn't bad. We had a nice view of the of the of the meadow, and uh, you know we did all the fun stuff. You know, because this stuff was all new to us. We'd never been camping before. You know, we took a hike. Um, you know, we built the camp. We built the campfire, and uh, you know, just kind of uh, enjoyed ourselves. And probably about nine o'clock at night, we're kicked back on these air mattresses, just mm-hmm. uh, enjoying the evening. And um, I know this sounds, Gary, this sounds cliche, I know, but this is true. And uh, I've had lots of people say, yeah, you know, that happened to me uh, in a situation. Um, matter of fact, David Pilates told me that it happened to him once. Uh, but there was a lull in our conversation. And we're separated by the campfire. So we had been having to raise our voices to hear one another because the uh, crickets and the tree frogs, all the bugs in the forest that make noise at night uh, were loud. Uh, They were very loud. And um, when there was this uh, break in our conversation, I noticed they had stopped and it was just quiet. And, you know, it wasn't only quiet, it was still I mean, we, we enjoyed a nice breeze earlier because it was a warm June day and uh, even a breeze was gone. It was just uh, still, it was like being in a sound booth and it unnerved me. It really did. It yeah. didn't phase my buddy. He was like, you know, hey, you know, don't worry about it. We were kind of uh, loud and. Uh, uh, sounds uh, ominous. Yeah. We quieted the bugs. They'll come back. Don't worry about it. Uh, so I tried not to. And um, we, we had a little more chit-chat, and uh, then he was fixated on something to his left, which would have been to the west. And he's looking at something, and I'm like, I'm about to ask him, what are you looking at? And he asked me, he says, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And, I mean, we were in a remote area. We were in the middle of nowhere. Right. The only light of any kind we could see was on the eastern horizon, we could see just the faintest glow, and that was the campsites um, set up by the, by the, you know, by the park. But that was the only only light we could see, and, and that just barely. Um, so I looked, and on the western horizon there were three little stars sitting in a tight triangle. Each star was about as bright as a north star, so they were, they were pretty bright. They looked artificial. They didn't look, you know, they were twinkling, but they didn't look like they belonged. And I, uh, I said, you know, what, what are those? And he's like, man, I, th- I think it's an aircraft of some kind. And I'm like, well, why isn't it moving? And Toby said, well, look, you know, it's headed straight for us. 
So until it deviates its course by a degree or two, it's going to look like it's um, like it's still. And I'm like, okay, well, we watched it, and it and it didn't it didn't it didn't do anything. <laughs> it just sat there, and uh, we're talking about it, and you know, five or ten minutes pass, and then all of a sudden, this thing rotates like it's on an axis, and it just turned. And it turned about 120 degrees and aligned itself where the a base of the triangle is parallel with the horizon. So the apex of the triangle is pointed up. And, um, you know, we should have been kind of, kind of freaked out. We should have been kind of excited. We should have been something. Um, but, you know, our, our reactions, our emotions were kind of muted. Um, and... Uh, we, was, we were kind of in a weird place. I don't know. Uh, and then just a few seconds later, it started to climb up into the sky. And as soon as it started that, I felt this wave of um, calm wash over me. Where all of that anxiety that I had had previously about the, you know, the, um, the bugs going quiet and, uh, um, you know, being calm all of a sudden, all that anxiety I had was gone. Okay. And, um, I think it was the same for my friend. Uh, and we were just uh, in a really strange place. I, I, I felt this mix of mild disinterest, maybe. Uh, I mean, not apathy, but um, certainly not attentive to the degree that I should have been. Uh, but I had no fear whatsoever, um, which is crazy. Because we watched this thing, and it climbed up into the sky and reached you know, an altitude, and it just kind of leveled out. I don't know how high it got. I'm going to guess 10,000 feet, I'm guessing. I had no point of reference. And then it changed orientation and uh, pointed in our direction with the, with the point of the triangle and started like a glide plane. It looked like it was just uh, gliding in our direction. And uh, the more we watched it, we saw the three points of light expand exponentially. Our proportionate to one another they always stayed uh, you know it was one so we could see that it was one solid object right. what I'm trying to say it wasn't three lights moving in unison it was one solid thing um, it was a beautiful night there were a trillion stars out the sky was blue not black um, and the the center of this thing um, between the lights uh, was jet black and it got bigger as it came closer, and it did this tumbling thing uh, where it would go end over end uh, and then continue its glide. And I, you know, to this day, I have this feeling that um, that was intentional. That was for us. That was kind of like saying, yeah, this thing's under, this thing's just not out of control. You know, it, it's it's moving with purpose. Right. Um, and it, it came into the horizon at about 5,000 feet. And then it descended slowly um, and ended up at about 3,000 feet over our heads, right over the meadow. And this thing fit right into that meadow uh, and filled the whole thing. It was a city block in length on each leg of the triangle. Uh, it was big. And if, if anyone, if any one of your listeners would like to see a, a picture of it, I don't have a photograph, unfortunately, right. but I, I have a drawing that I made 
1977 contemporaneous with the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's at terrylovelace.com. Okay. What I'll do is I'll post a link to the pictures. Yeah. So when yeah. my listeners are listening, they can click on the link and check these out. Yeah, the, the x-rays and uh, yeah. there's some interesting stuff there. So this thing came to a halt 3,000 feet over our heads. And, you know, since from the time that it started climbing up in the sky, I don't, I don't think there were like a dozen words exchanged between us. We were just, uh, we were just, uh, like I said, we were under its uh, influence somehow. Um, I believe that. And we saw this thing from underneath this thing and in the center um, became a light, became a beam of light shot down. And it was about uh, six inches in diameter. It was a column of white light and it was just, and like someone hit a switch and it turned on and it landed right in, right in the middle of our campfire. And it was this visible white light. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ever seen a, like a high power searchlight that cutting through yeah. fog? Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly what it was like. Only there was no fog. There was just this column of white light. So it was, um, it was odd. And uh, we looked at it. And again, I, I don't think we discussed it. I know we didn't discuss it. And it was there for probably a minute and then turned off again, like someone hit a switch. And then there came this, um, another light from the same spot almost immediately. And it was a, uh, was a laser beam. Uh, now lasers were pretty new in 1977. I'd seen them on TV, yeah. but I'd, I'd never seen one, you know, in real life. Uh, but I knew what they were. Mm-hmm. And this laser beam about the diameter of a pencil uh, landed in our camp and it would land in a spot and stay there for like a tenth of a second and then reappear somewhere else. So 10 times a second, this thing would dance all over the um, the uh, campsite. And that that laser beam struck me in the chest at least twice. I didn't feel anything. I know it struck my friend. Mm-hmm. It struck all the stuff that we brought. It struck my car, the tent, um, you know, my friend's cooler, his backpack, all the stuff that we had. It seemed like it. Uh, and I had this feeling, you know, this thing's checking us out. You know, yeah. it is. It's scanning us. Um, and then that abruptly stopped. And that lasted maybe three minutes, a little longer than the white light. And then uh, we sat there and... Uh, my friend Toby was wrong because the crickets never, the bugs never did come back. It was, it was dead quiet. And that feeling of calm, that sensation of calm that I had um, changed. And all of a sudden I was sleepy. I mean, like I was heavily sedated sleepy. And all I wanted to do was get in that tent and lay down on that mat, uh, blow up mattress and go to bed. And uh, my buddy stood up and dragged his air mattress over and threw it in the tent. He fell on top of his. Now, this is with this thing 3,000 feet over our heads and, uh, and this weird light show. Um, I went over. I didn't bother to take off my boots or my shirt or anything. I just threw my, uh, my air mattress in, and I, I fell down on top of it. And as soon as my head hit that, that uh, inflatable pillow, I was out. I mean, I was just gone. 
I had no dreams. I had no, uh, I mean, it was like being under anesthesia, you know, you just like you close your eyes, mm -hmm. you open them and you're uh, in recovery. Yeah. Well, what I did was I closed my eyes and the next thing I knew, uh, there was this, another crazy light show. There were these flashing lights, uh, not in sequence, they're odd at odd intervals. And they were flashing, um, you know, orange and yellow and white. And the lights were really, uh, really bright. I mean, they lit up the inside of that tent like a ballpark at night, man. It was very intense uh, light. And uh, I wake up and I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, you know, what am I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Toby and I are camping. That's right. And I see these lights. And, you know, we both knew we were trespassing. We thought we were trespassing into some type of, you know, nature preserve or something. You know, we had no intentions of, uh, you know, leaving a mess or, or, you know, disrespecting anything. We were going to clean up after ourselves. But I thought, you know, this is probably the park. I thought they were the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck. That's where I thought these lights were coming from. Right. And um, I sat up and I realized that I had joint pain and I, I looked down at my feet and my boots are unlaced and that really confused me uh, because I knew I left them on fully laced and you know the the military kind of drills that into your head to take care of your feet because if you can't walk you're not you're not much good and uh, so I uh, I was annoyed more than anything uh, and I took my boots off uh, I had no memory of this thing being you know, 3,000 feet over our heads or anything that had happened the night before. Uh, I took my boots off and my socks were on sideways. And I thought, you know, how did this happen? And I, I took them off too, and I put them on properly. I put my boots on, laced them up, and uh, turned my attention to my friend who's on his knees, and he's looking out of his flap in the tent. And... Uh, during one of these flashes of bright white light, I could see tracks of tears on the side of his face. Because I guess that's the saline in the tears kind of fluoresces mm -hmm. against the bright light. And I could see these tracks of tears. And that, start, that scared me a little bit. Um, I wasn't full on terrified yet, but, uh, but that shook me up because I couldn't imagine. You know, what in the world would make this guy uh, cry? Because um, I'd worked with him for three years and I knew him to be, you know, a solid guy. I mean, he, so um, he was on his knees and he's looking out of the flap on his side of the tent. He's got it pulled back about just two inches and he's peeking out at something. And I, uh, I'm wondering what, you know, I'm like, Toby, man, what are you looking at? What's out there? Is it park rangers? And um, his voice is, is, is shaky. And he says, be quiet. They're still out there. And I'm like, man, who's still out there? What are you talking about? And uh, he didn't answer me. And I got to my knees and I pulled back the flap of my tent. And I looked out. And what I saw was that the, that, triangle thing that had been 3,000 feet over our heads, okay. when, you know, some hours before. I don't know what time it was because both of our mechanical watches had stopped at right. 240 and never worked again. Um, 
So I don't have no idea. I have no idea what time it is. In retrospect, I could guess from when the sun came up, it had to be around 5 a.m. Um, and what I saw was that this triangle thing had descended. And instead of being 3,000 feet over our heads, it's now 30 feet over the over this meadow. So we're a little bit offset. We're not underneath the thing, but just barely offset. That's how we were able to see the side of it. Uh, and I wouldn't have wanted this thing hanging over my head. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, and I, the second thing I saw was what I, what I thought were kids, maybe a dozen, 15 kids. I didn't count them. Uh, and they were just kind of milling around the uh, meadow in pairs. They're paired up in twos and threes. And I'm like, and I'm confused. And I'm like, Toby, man, what, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? And he said, Terry, man, look at them. Those ain't no little kids. They're not human beings. And, uh, and that shook me. And he said, don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And when he said that word, when they took us and they hurt, when he said that sentence, uh, I had just a flash of memory from being inside that thing. Okay. And I've got some memories that have returned in the form of nightmares. And, uh, um, well, it's kind of a long story, but yeah. So, um, yeah, we'd been inside the thing. And uh, I looked and he was right, because whatever these things were, they were not human. Uh, they were... I could see when the when the lights on the points of the triangle would flash bright, I could see them, but we were a fair distance away still. But I could see that they were gray in color. Uh, they didn't look like they were wearing garments of any kind. They were just gray. They had big eyes, but not not the uh, not the exaggerated huge eyes like you see sometimes in motion pictures. Um, these were more just like. Size, eyes the size of a big pair of sunglasses. Okay. And they walked with a peculiar gait. They, when they took a step uh, forward on every step, it was like their knees were hinged to go like two inches backward with each with each step. It's hard to describe. But, um, so they, they, it was like they were dragging their their back leg forward on each step because of this way that their knees were hinged. Um, and we, we watched them and, uh, we were just scared to death because we were afraid that one of us is going to sneeze or cough and then draw attention to ourselves. And these things are going to come over to us. And we had no way of knowing that they, they were long done with us. You know, we didn't know that they had, uh, already had us and had dropped us off already. So, um, and I've never had a clear linear memory. Of what happened in there. I have just just bits and pieces. Uh, mostly so, what's, so what do you um, remember from being in the craft? I can tell you. I remember a couple of vignettes, just little pieces here and there. The first memory that I have is that I was inside this craft and or they had taken us somewhere else. I don't know which, but the inside of the craft looked much larger than the thing did from the outside. Now, I mean, this thing was big. I mean, it was like a super Walmart big. It was huge from the outside. From the inside, um, wherever we were, I don't I say, I, I don't know if we were in a different craft or what, because I had no memory of getting inside the thing. Uh, but the inside of it looked like an NFL stadium. It was absolutely enormous. 
and there was um, everything was stainless steel uh, or white uh, or gray in color. Uh, there were walkways that wound all the way around, and I found myself. I had been. I was naked. I was holding my boots and my clothing in my arms by my chest, and I couldn't move. I couldn't move anything except my eyeballs. So I could swivel my eyeballs around and look. And if I strained my eyes to the left, I could perceive my friend was there too. Uh, so I knew Toby was there, um, but I couldn't open my mouth and talk to him. And uh, not that we have anything to say. Uh, and I'm just scared to death. The next thing I recall was I heard a woman screaming and you know, when somebody screams, I mean, there's different kinds of screams. I mean, uh, but this woman sounded like she was in pain. And that that didn't do anything to help my anxiety. And then my friend was gone. Um, I didn't see them take him, but I, I, I knew that he was gone. And I heard him scream because I recognized his voice. And I heard him say, oh, my God, no, no, please, no. And then scream. Um, so, and I could tell that, um, like the woman, the, the voices were muffled, like, you know, because he couldn't open his mouth properly, uh, because he was still, still frozen, but he was, you know, talking through, uh, what little bit of gap that he had in his teeth. And, uh, um, I remember that the next thing I remember was, I remember that there were these little gray guys all over the place. And they were rushing around kind of, um, you know, kind of with a purpose. They were, they were, they were going, they were doing things. They weren't just milling around. I saw nobody standing around. Um, I could see to the far end, but just barely of this thing, um, because the dimensions were enormous. It was incredibly well lit on the inside. Uh, and we suffered burns, what's called flash burns. We had the same burns to our eyes that an arc welder would have if they didn't have that, you know, that hood with, uh, with the uh, darkened glass in it. Yeah. Uh, so we had that, which is, it's a sunburn to the cornea of your eyes, what it is. And it's very painful. So the inside of this place, it seemed like it just, I never saw a light fixture, but it was like light just radiated out of everywhere. Uh, I saw three flying saucers. I saw three flying saucers uh, to my left. They were in front of what looked like huge metal garage doors. And they, I mean, they were lined up, man, like, like, like aircraft below a carrier deck. They were just right there. And uh, probably the most frightening thing that happened to me, a couple other things I'll get to, but this is the most frightening thing. Um, and this is what's kind of haunted my sleep uh, and, and still does on occasion. Um, there was this guy who was um, walking around and he carried himself with an air of authority. He was about my height. He was about six foot tall. And um, he, uh, yeah, he just looked like he was the guy in charge. And he wore some kind of garment that was gray with a V-neck. He was not gray. His complexion was a chalkish, pinkish uh, color, um, more whitish pink than anything. Mm -hmm. 
he had no ears to speak of. He had, you know, uh, a hole there uh, for an ear canal, but no cartilage around it. He had no nose, just two nostrils, a slit for a mouth. And his eyes were like the gray guys. They were more like a pair of wraparound Ray-Ban sunglasses than, uh, than the big exaggerated eyes you see in the movies. Uh, I didn't see any hair on top of his head, um, but kind of blotchy spots up there. Um, I could see that he had four long fingers. He may have had a thumb beneath that, I don't know. Uh, but what happened was I'm straining my eyes to the left as far as they'll go. And just by happenstance, this guy turns his head and we locked eyes for a moment. And that was, that was chilling because, um, and I don't know any better way to explain it, but this guy was in my head. I mean, he was in my head and I knew he was in my head. And he, um, he knew me, he knew my wife, he knew my family, he knew my secrets, my hopes, he knew everything about me. It was just this huge invasion of your privacy. And um, we're looking eyeball to eyeball and um, his eyes are like gloss paint, uh, shiny black. Right. And they just radiated intellect. I don't know. I, I used this analogy before and it really is the best analogy. Um, I have a dog. I have an English setter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he'll come and put his head in my lap and I'll pet, pet him on top of the head and say, hey, good boy, scratch his ears. And he's happy. And um, and he looks up at me with those big brown eyes, and and uh, you know I know that he he's loyal and that he trusts me, he loves me, and in his own way he knows that. But he also knows that I'm the alpha, you know, and I I supply him with his needs. I meet his needs, and I'm on a different level intellect wise than he is, and. Uh, he may be aware of that in his own way. Like I said, he, he respects me as the alpha. Right. In this exchange with this creature, I felt like I was the dog. I felt absolutely humbled. Um, this thing, it's got to be 500 rungs up the evolutionary ladder from us. I mean, wow. these things are just, um, they're just intelligence. They're just really, really smart beings and um, like I say I, I felt absolutely inadequate right. and something about that I mean you know it, it's it's a tough realization to, to when you when you realize that you're not the top of the food chain that uh, there are other living creatures out there that uh, you know can best us uh, in everything you know, emotionally intellectually on every level, this guy, you know, was was just above me. Right. We like that, we like to think we're at the top of the food chain, but we're not. <laughs> boy, I wish you're not. This guy, uh, it was a very humbling experience that stayed with me to this day. And you know, um, I I sometimes see uh, UFOs in the air, and uh, you know, if I do, I always think, uh, you know. It's him or one of his uh, pals that's flying the thing. I don't know why I find that so scary in my in my nightmares, but you know it starts to play out where we lock eyes 
And I can't wake up or stop the dream until the thing has has played out. And um, then I usually wake up with a scream. Um, then I got to turn on a light and get up for a while and, you know, watch the news or, you know, turn some lights on or something because it, uh, it rattles me every time. I think they would rattle anybody. And then the, uh, the last vignette that I'll share with you was... Um, after my Toby, my friend Toby was screaming, they came and they got me. And um, again, I'm paralyzed, holding my clothing between my hands and I'm gliding. I got one of the little gray guys on each arm and they're gliding me. Uh, I don't feel my feet rubbing against the, the, what looks like some kind of gray rubberized floor. I just feel like I'm gliding, like maybe, you know, an eighth of an inch off of the ground somehow. And they took me down this corridor, long corridor, that uh, to the left there was a white wall, and on the right there were rows and rows of fish tanks uh, in various sizes, starting from, you know, small to, you know, great big. Uh, and at the end there were some glass tubes, uh, big enough for a human being to be in. And in one of these tanks, some of the tanks had pink water in them. And in one of these tanks with the pink water, uh, there was what I thought looked like a puppy. You know how newborn puppies have those folds of skin all yes. over? Mm -hmm. This thing had that, had the folds of skin. And I could see an umbilical cord floating in the fluid. Um, and I thought, you know, they, they're growing this thing in vitro, whatever this thing is. And I, um, I, as we're rolling by, you know, I can't move my head, but I can move my eyes. My eyes are to the right, and it opened an eye, and uh, and I about flipped out. Of course, I couldn't react to it except mentally, mm -hmm. um, but that startled me. And that, that really startled me. And then they took me in this white room, white domed room, and there was a classic uh, exam table there that looked like it was made out of white porcelain. And one of the gray guys took my, takes my clothing and boots away from me. And uh, they lifted me up and laid me down on this table. And I'm still paralyzed. I'm still, every joint in my body is frozen. Um, and the table was warm. And, and that surprised me because I was expecting it to be cold. And then I realized it's warm because, uh, you know, there have been a, probably a parade of human bodies in this thing. You know, they, did, they didn't warm it for my comfort, that's for sure. Uh, but, you know, I got to say that this whole thing, this whole little scenario had a real medical or clinical vibe to it. You know, I never thought that I'm in a torture chamber or something. Uh, I never thought they were going to kill me or hurt me while I was in there. Uh, I was worried about that outside and the other when I was in that atrium of the thing. But back here... Uh, there was a definite clinical vibe to it. And I saw an insectoid-like thing, um, seven, eight foot tall, because I don't know how tall this pedestal really was, how far it was off the ground, but tall. And it was green in color, and it had the large multifaceted eyes uh, and a triangular-shaped head and multi-parted uh, uh, mouth parts that were just multiple, uh, like an insect would have. Now, you know, and this is crazy. I, every time I have the memory of this thing, I see it in a white lab coat. 
Now, I don't think this thing wore a white lab coat, really. Um, but I think that for my benefit, they showed him in a white lab coat. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and that's the way I see him. And I, uh, they were, he was doing something to my lower back. Um, and, of course, I can't see, but they didn't anesthetize me. And I thought, that's, this is crazy. They're operating on me without anesthesia. And, I, I, you know, I, I guess they operate under a different code of ethics than you and I uh, abide by. But I, I think in their minds, somehow, you know, they can, they can hurt you and then take away the memory and then it's okay in their world, maybe. Um, but it doesn't really work that way with human beings because um, those memories will bubble up um, to your consciousness. And, uh, and it's traumatic. So I'm screaming, or I'm trying to, um, and I'm screaming as loud as I can, but I'm puzzled because I can't hear anything. And I would fill my lungs with air and scream as loud as I could, um, you know, through, through clenched teeth, barely open, and I couldn't hear anything. And I, I keep doing this. Uh, number one, it's a pain response. Uh, and number two, I'm scared to death. So this, I call him Dr. Bug. Dr. Bug uh, bent over in my direction and he had his head tilted in such a way that uh, one eyeball is looking at my eyes and we make eye contact. And I heard this guy in my head with crystal clarity, no question about it. It wasn't audible. It was, it was telepathic. And he said, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. You know, we don't hurt you. You know, we take you back now. Stop screaming. And he tapped me on the forehead and I was out. I was unconscious. The next thing I remember was waking up um, by my car and I'm not fully conscious. I'm half conscious, semi-conscious. And I remember thinking, oh, these guys screwed up. They should have put us back in the tent. Um, and I no sooner thought that than these, these gray guys are uh, dragging us over and they threw us back in the tent. And, you know, I, I have a theory about the gray guys. I mean, and I think there's probably, you know, lots of different kinds out there. So I'm not, uh, I'm not describing all gray beings there are. Because uh, people point to me and point point out that they had a different experience with grays, uh, so I can only describe the experience that I had with them. Um, but I think these things are not, you know, they're not sentient in the way that you and I are. They're not living, self-aware beings. I think they're probably some kind of uh, artificial intelligence and you know, quantum computing and nanotechnology and maybe some biological material thrown in. Hmm. But I think they're manufactured. I don't think they're living like us. Right. Um, I call them in, the, in my book, uh, my first book, I call them the worker bees. And I think that's an apt description of them. So, so, so do you think they're all working for that one pink guy? Pink guy was in control. Yeah. I don't know... He was the only guy that I saw that wasn't a gray, um, except for, you know, Dr. Buck. Buck, yeah. And uh, I'm sure this place was so big, I can't imagine there's one guy running the thing, but 
But who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I didn't see anybody else. I didn't see anything that looked... Uh, the guy that I saw, I had the perception, you know, the pink guy gave me a perception that he was that he was masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, where the gray guys, I thought, were kind of more neutral, you know, maybe maybe not sexed in either way. Right. And um, Doctor Bug, I, I the voice I heard in my head sounded masculine. Uh, no accent by the way, uh, you know, perfect diction, perfect English. And I don't, uh, you know, you would think that seeing an, an eight foot tall praying mantis would be the focus of your nightmares, but it's, he's really not. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was angry for a long time after this happened and uh, very angry. And uh, I blamed uh, them. And, uh, you know, I've kind of mellowed. My stance on that is kind of mellowed. Uh, you know, yes, what happened to me in June of 1977 was absolutely frightening. And yes, we did suffer some burns. Uh, but I think the burns were collateral damage. I don't think they were intentionally inflicted to hurt us. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was the intent. You know, I, I like to think if I could sit down, you know, on my patio outside and, and have a beer with Dr. Bug, he would just say something like, Hey, you know, no hard feelings. Just doing my job, man. Hmm. So that's kind of the vibe that I have. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think that I don't think that they were evil uh, in in that sense of the word. Uh, you know, um, I think maybe that they uh, they look at us as being so inferior that. Uh, you know, they treat us the way that we treat animals. Do, do you, you know? think do you think that the U.S. government has an agreement with them to allow them to abduct a certain amount of human beings? I do for study, I, like I the the Eisenhower Agreement. I absolutely believe that. I say that in my second book. I actually wrote two books, Gary. I wrote uh, Incident at Devil's Den, mm-hmm. um, which I published in March of 2018. And it was a number one bestseller. Um, and it's got 500 reviews, uh, good reviews. And I just put out a second book, December 17th, called Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Um, and I'd like to talk a little about that tonight, if we could. Absolutely. You know, in the back of my first book, I put an email address. And I said, look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. Uh, I'm a lawyer. But um you know, if you want to tell me about your personal experience, I'd love to love to hear your story. Um, you know, and if you've, if you've had an experience like mine, uh, <clears throat> write to me. You know, I promise I'll write you back. I've got, as of, as of this morning, 1,572 responses from people, emails from people. It doesn't surprise me. And I answer every single one. And, uh, you know, I read David Pilates' books. Um, yeah. The fourth one, by the way, the fourth volume in his series is called The Devil is in the Details. Mm-hmm. And Devil's Den State Park is in that, that mix. Um, one of the stories he talks about, I talk about in uh, Incident in Devil's Den, is the, uh, 
missing of the abduction of Catherine Van Alst in 1946. Uh, I found that story uh, independently because the Park Service doesn't share that information with you. <laughs> you know, they, they're, they're not forthcoming. So I did my own research and I found an article in the Pittsburgh Press from 1946. And it's kind of a cool story. Um, and I wish I'd known this uh, when Toby first brought this thing up because we would not have gone down there. Uh, there was this young family from uh, Pittsburgh and it was a, you know, mom, dad, uh, a little girl, age seven, named Catherine, last name is Van Alst, two words, V-A-N, and then A-L-S-T, Van Alst. Um, and they were going to see relatives in El Paso, Texas. And this is 1946, uh, summer of 1946, you know, just barely a year, not even a year after the end of World War II. And I didn't know this, but at the end of World War II, there was a camping craze across the United States. And people were buying these pull-behind campers. And, um, you know, state parks were just buzzing with people. Uh, so they were, they were going to drive from Pittsburgh to El Paso to visit relatives and spend uh, two nights at Devil's Den. And they uh, got there, set up their camp. Spent the first night without incident, woke up the next morning, you know, dad's still asleep in the, in the camper, mom's putting breakfast on the table, and uh, the three kids are running around and around the camper like kids will do. And, uh, you know, the mom's kind of watching them, keeping an eye on them, and the two boys pop out from around the camper. And then they turn around, they look, and the mother's like, where's Catherine? And they're all like, she was right here. Um, and then my, you know, mom frowns and says, well, go find her. So the two boys scamper off and they go look for their, for their older sister, um, together. And they come back in 10 minutes and they say, we can't find her. She's not in the bathroom. She's nowhere. So they wake the old man up and they start, they start a search and they know that she can't have gone far. She's dressed in shower thongs and a bathing suit. That's all she has. And they got some other campers involved. And, you know, four hours later, it's noon and the park department is involved. And then by one o'clock that day, the, there's an adjacent park uh, on the other side of the road. Devil's Den is, a, is an Arkansas state park. Mm. And then to the east of that, divided by a highway, there is a uh, federal park, uh, Ozark National Forest. And that's run by the federal government. So the feds at the Ozark National Forest sent all their additional park ranchers over to help with the search. And they eventually got together about 2,500 people. They had uh, two aircraft out of Little Rock from the Civil Air Patrol come over and, you know, fly over the area and look for her. Um, they didn't have FLIR back in those days, forward-looking infrared radar, but, um, but they had two guys with, you know, binoculars over the... Yeah, they had no luck. Uh, there were a bunch of volunteers from the University of Arkansas. And uh, this was going to transition from a rescue mission to a recovery mission and scale way back, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And on the seventh day, there's a young man from the University of Arkansas named Porter Chadwick. 
I tried to find him and I could not. I tried to find Catherine Van Alst and could not. Um, but Chadwick, Porter Chadwick, um, was about, well, a mile and a half, two miles from where she went missing, a fair distance. And there was this uh, steep incline uh, with a rock, a rocky, just a big rocky cliff with a plateau on top. And to get to the top, you had to take this winding trail, you know, up the side of the thing to an elevation of about 700 feet from um, the campground. Now, how she could do that in shower thongs is anybody's guess. Um, but he got to the top of this thing and he calls out, Catherine, and little girl pops out, pops out from under a limestone overhang. And she says, here I am. And this poor kid just about melts down and he runs over and he picks her up and he says, my God, are you okay? Are you, what happened to you? Where have you been? And she just was as calm and, and said, I don't know. I, I woke up here this morning and I thought I'd wait here till you come to get me. You know, can you take me back to mom? And he said, yes, we can. So he carried her, you know, the mm -hmm. two, two miles back to the, to the, uh, to the uh, campsite. She had no memory of anything that happened. And uh, here's what's weird. It was also reported in the uh, Kansas City Star. Uh, evidently, they have a lot of relatives in Kansas City area, too, uh, as well as the uh, Pittsburgh Press. Um, Mom is quoted as saying that when asked by a reporter, what's your daughter's mood like? She said that Catherine was, quote, eerily calm. Now, you know, that's, that's just this doesn't ring like it's just as an odd ring to it. Um, she also made the statement that except for a few bug bites, her daughter was fine. She hadn't seemed to have lost an ounce of weight. She was well hydrated and there was no potable water up there anywhere. So where she got water from, who knows, but she was fully hydrated. Um, the mother said her hair was still clean from her shower the night before, a week ago. <laughs> and um, So they had her for a while. Yeah. And that's the story of Catherine Van Alst. God, I would love to have found her. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Van Alsts out there. And um, she would have been fairly up in years. Uh, I wish I could have found her. That's an opportunity lost. I wish I'd known, known right. her. You know what I did do is I, I tried to find out how did this place get and deserve the name Devil? Um, because that struck me. I hadn't thought about that, you know, until 2017. You know, I, I want to be clear. I never had any intention of telling anybody this story. I never had any intention of writing books about it or speaking about it publicly. Um, mostly because I, I, I lived, worked in the, in the legal community and, uh, I mean, that would have been the end of my job. That's right. You were a, uh, you were um, what, a lawyer or um, attorney general. I was an assistant. I was a lawyer first, and I was an assistant attorney general for the U.S. territory of American Samoa, um, the only U.S. territory south of the equator. Uh, lovely people, terrific people down there. Um, and then uh, from there, I went to the state of Vermont, uh, where I was state's attorney and worked for their board of medical practice. Um, yeah. Retired from there in 2012. And then my wife and I, we moved to, to Dallas where we have, um, we have uh, adult children here. 
and grandchildren. So, you know, why stay in Vermont? We can come back here and be be near our grandkids. Yeah. So, um, I did I did some research on Devil's Den, and I found that there are two Native American tribes that lay claim to this place, um, the Cato and the Kahino tribe. Uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing either one of those. Um, and I made some phone calls, and I found in Russellville, Arkansas, a woman who uh, held herself out to be a Cato or Kato, I forget the pronunciation she used, but she was a medicine woman for the tribe and very active in tribal affairs. Um, so I called her up and I said, look, I'm, I'm, I know you don't know me. Uh, my name's Terry Lovelace. I'm, I'm writing a book about uh, something that happened to me in Devil's Den. I know that your people have a claim to that land. And I was just wondering if you would share with me. Uh, I'm trying to decide, this, I'm trying to discern how it got the name Devil. You know, how did it earn the name Devil? And, uh, and she was very kind. And she said, you know, I, um, I don't know. She says, all I can tell you is that it's been handed down verbally um, for years, for as long as we know. Um, every generation has known that we don't hunt there. We don't camp there. We don't fish there. Devil's Den is a place that we will transit through. We'll walk through it to get to the other side. Um, but it's not a place they hang out. And um, I found that interesting. So then I, I went a step further and through a contact I have at Michigan State University, um, I found a uh, gentleman who is an archeologist. Actually he and his wife are both archeologists and uh, they specialize in Southern Missouri, Northern Arkansas, that Ozark area they call it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me that they found and find routinely old campsites, um, you know, with charcoal burnt, uh, and they find flint points and worked flint going back to Neolithic times. Uh, and I didn't know there were people here, you know, 6,000 years ago, but evidently there were, uh, and longer, for, further back than that. Right. Um, and he said they find Native American uh, worked flint pieces all around Devil's Den, you know, like the Neolithic stuff, mm -hmm. but they've never found a single human artifact inside the confines of Devil's Den, not one. And I asked him, I said, do you think that is odd? And he says, yeah, that's kind of beyond the pale of coincidence. So that was his, that was his thing about Devil's Den. So evidently it's got a reputation that goes back a long time. Yeah, 6,000 years is a long time. Yeah. You know, when I was writing this book, uh, I kept in touch with the uh, local newspapers down there. And in 2017, in early 2017, there was a 28-year-old young woman named Monica Murphy who um, was missing, and they found her four or five days later. And... Uh, she had jumped or had fallen off of a limestone bluff and fell a hundred feet to her death. And um, the county medical examiner ruled it as a suicide. And it, it may have been, I mean, I, I don't know the circumstances, but, um, and then just, just two events, just for example, sake, uh, that took place in 2017 while I was, you know, busy on a word processor cranking this thing out. 
in August of uh, 2017, there was a young man, 32 years of age, uh, named Rodney Letterman from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And he and a friend drove down to Devil's Den um, to kind of explore and to walk the uh, trails. There's a really nice paved trail. I've never been to it, but uh, I hear that it's nice. And it's a, it's a paved pathway that cuts through the park uh, along what they call the Butterfield Trail, which was the old stagecoach line, first stagecoach line, uh, transcontinental. And um, so these, these, this guy, Rodney Letterman and his friend go down in the truck and they park the truck and they go out and they're walking the trail. And about a mile into the walk, Rodney realizes he's wheezing. And he says, oh, man, I'm sorry. I left my inhaler back in the truck uh, and I'm having an attack. Would you mind running back and grabbing it for me? And his friend said, sure, no worries. <clears throat> so his friend runs back to the truck, uh, gets Rodney Letterman's inhaler and comes running back. And he's gone maybe 30 minutes. And he gets back and there's no Rodney Letterman. This is a Saturday afternoon. There are, there are a fair amount of people milling around, you know. Um, and... Uh, he was, he was sure that this was the spot and here's Rodney Letterman's phone on the ground right at the edge of the trail. And I don't know about you, Gary, but my, my phone's either in my hand or in my pocket. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that didn't make any sense. So he knew the, the, the terrain outside that paved trail is rocky and, and his friend having an asthma attack, there's no way that he could be wandering around out in the woods. It's just not possible. So he calls the ranger station and to their, their, to their credit, they respond right away. And um, they started a search immediately and uh, they pulled in local uh, uh, sheriff's departments and uh, everybody joins in the search. And it, and it gets to be a search that's on the same scale as what they have organized for little Catherine, you know, hundreds of volunteers, thousands of volunteers. Only this time they have, uh, you know, helicopters from the national guard with forward looking infrared radar, uh, to find a heat signature, um, at night. And they had, um, I believe 2,500 is what it was quoted in the paper as saying 2,500 volunteers, uh, and they search, they search the park. I mean, it's a big park. I, I forget how many acres it is, but it's a, it's a very big park. Um, and uh, they search for a week and then they scaled back the operation. No Rodney Letterman, no sign of him, no shoes, no clothing, no nothing. And in my first book, I told the readers, look, if, if, if I find out what happened to Rodney Letterman, I'll let you know. And that was part of the catalyst to write the second book I wanted to tell folks, what happened to Rodney Letterman? Well, in March of 2019, there's a young couple walking along the Butterfield Trail. And the young lady sees um, on a sitting on a log just off the trail, um, what she thought was an albino turtle. And she says to her friend, is that an albino turtle? And they go over, he picks it up. And then he draw, he realizes what he is, what it is, and he drops it. And they called the park rangers. It was, it was a very top of Rodney Letterman's skull, and it had been bleached white in the sun. 
and it was sitting right on top of this log. And I talked to a deputy sheriff who told me that this thing was placed there. I mean, obviously somebody set it there to be found. Um, and that's all they ever found. Uh, Bartlesville medical examiner determined through DNA evidence that it was absolutely the skull cap of Rodney Letterman. Right. Um, you know, no cause of death or anything, obviously there's not, not enough to work with. Um, but uh, that that was the end of Rodney Letterman. And uh, it's just an amazing story because the thought that whatever these things are that take people, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't want to come across preaching fear. Um, I just want to be honest. And uh, there are people out there that say that these things are, are benign, that they're here to help us. Um, I don't know. All I know is a whole lot of people go missing, you know, and David Politis, my hat's off to him because uh, the uh, National Park Service and state park agencies don't make it easy to find data. And uh, the fact that they are so secretive about that data makes me very suspicious that something is going on. But there's just too many people just absolutely just vanish. Right, especially in these state and federal parks. You know, David Pilates says that they're what he calls cluster areas where, you know, lots of people go missing. And you know what he also found, uh, and he said this in volume four of his book, uh, the incident is in, uh, the devil is in the detail, um, that parks that have the name are devil in them, like Devil's Glade, Devil's Glen, Devil's Creek, Devil's Lake, get the idea, Devil's mm -hmm. Den, uh, or Diablo even, have a higher percentage of uh, missing people under odd occurrences than parks that don't have the name Devil or Diablo in them. That's kind of an odd fact. So, you know, and, and David Pilates, um, is a good statistician. I mean, he uh, he doesn't make assumptions. He's very careful not to come out and say, you know, well, I think it's this, um, you know, but he's, he's just honest in reporting the facts. Uh, you know, he works with a spreadsheet and reports the figures. Um, I wish uh, he just suffered a terrible tragedy in his family. He just lost a son. Oh, no. Um, so, you know, it's it's probably not a good time to contact him. But uh, I was going to see him at the Ozark uh, uh, UFO conference this year in, uh, in uh, uh, something springs in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Eureka Springs in Arkansas. Um, but the, the uh, conference got changed to a virtual conference. So... But it's still going to happen um, April 10th and 11th, um, just virtually. Mm -hmm. I'll be there with about eight others. So if anybody wants to join us, uh, go to my Facebook page, uh, Incident at Devil's Den. Um, or you can go to Terry Lovelace on Facebook, uh, either one. And you can find information about that conference and the 
other ones that I have planned for the year. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely, uh, I'll post links to it in the notes. So yep. what, what do you think the agenda is and what is up with the implants? You know, um, I said earlier, and I want to emphasize that I never, ever intended to talk about this in a public way. Um, and uh, in 2012, I retired in January 2012 from the state of Vermont, and we moved to Dallas. And October of that year, I got up one morning and I couldn't bear weight on my right leg. And um, it hurt. And I get all my medical care from the VA, and I told my wife, I said, I I need to go to the hospital. I, something's wrong with my leg. And uh, so she took me and uh, I was stressed right away that uh, the problem that was the problem with my right knee was what's called a Baker cyst. Uh, it's a benign cyst. I mean, you catch it like you get a cold. It's just something that flares up. It's painful for two weeks. Then they always resolve on their own. They're never cancerous or anything. They're just uh, a nuisance. That was the cause of my pain. Nothing to do with the implants whatsoever. But I, uh, I saw, I waited my turn and I saw a physician's assistant who's very knowledgeable, very friendly. And she said, you know, well, shoot an x-ray of your leg. And uh, uh, they did two shots, one from like straight head on and then one with my leg bent. And she comes out and she, uh, looks at the table and make sure there's nothing on the table and puts another cartridge in and says, we're going to take two more and I'm like, fine, whatever. And uh, she took two more and she asked me, she said, slowly said, have you had a, a shrapnel wound or some kind? And I'm like, no, I, I never left the state of Missouri. And uh, she's like, is there any, have you been in an accident that could account for you having a, a piece of uh, metal in your leg? And I'm like, no, nah, I've, I've never injured that leg in any way other than, you know, skin knee as a kid, but, but nothing, nothing major. And she said, well, I've asked the radiologist to come down and take a look at your x-rays. Um, and I'm like, okay, can I see them? And she says, well, I'll let the radiologist show them to you. Like, All right, thanks. So a radiologist comes down, obviously highly annoyed that he gets called down. And he goes over and he looks at the first x-ray, the one of my uh, upper knee that shows, if you look at that, there's a square object that looks manufactured. It yeah, looks, yeah, I saw the picture. Part of the human body, yeah. About the size of a fingernail with two straight wires attached that lead up my leg. Now, you know what's odd is that I was a runner for 40-some years. And, um, you know, I didn't run marathons, but I'd run a couple miles a day almost every day. And from since 1979, when I started running, uh, I noticed that every time I would hit the two mile mark in my run, I mean, give or take 50 yards, uh, the spot above my knee would go perfectly numb. And I mean, I could take a pin and trace the outline of it and, you know, delineate the edges, the sharp edges, you know, numb, 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 ouch, that's painful, you know, and, uh, it's perfectly round, about the size of a half dollar. Um, and it's just above and, and to the right lateral of my, of my knee. 
And then that would fade, that numbness would fade after about 30 minutes. So I asked the guys I ran with and they, they were like, I never heard of such a thing. So next time I was at my doctor's office, I said, hey, look, you know, every time I hit the two mile mark in my run, this spot here on my leg goes completely numb. Um, can you tell me what's up with that? And is it anything to be concerned about? And she looked at my leg and says, you know, no, I don't think so. She says, it sounds quote, like a histemic reaction of some kind. And she says, if it's not affecting your run, I really wouldn't, wouldn't be concerned. Um, I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't. But man, I got to tell you, when I saw that x-ray and I realized that that spot that went numb lay right over the top of this thing that looks like an electronic device, um, that was just a shock. I mean, that was like a slap in the face. I, and that brought back... 1977 all over again. And uh, that validated that these things had put their hands on me. And that was really unsettling. Um, and, you know, I would normally have two or three screaming nightmares a year, you know, every year, but uh, this ramped up the anxiety. Oh, yeah. I finally, uh, well, I'll get into that, but so the radiologist comes over and he pokes me in the knee and he says, you're going to have a scar right here. And I said, no, doctor, I don't have a scar there. And he says, sure you do. He says, this thing couldn't be this deep in your leg. You can't violate the integrity of the skin and be this deep in the fascia uh, of your, of your knee and there not be a scar. That's just not possible. Uh, and I said, well, why don't you look at my knee knock yourself out because I don't have a scar. And, uh, and he did. And he looked kind of uh, stunned. And I said, well, doctor, may I ask you, how often is it that you find a foreign object in a human body like this and there not be a corresponding scar? And he says, never. He says, first time I've ever seen this. I don't know how that thing got in your life. <coughs> and then he said, um, and there's more. He said, below your leg, there are some bones in your leg. And I thought he was being sarcastic. And I said, well, you know, isn't it supposed to be that way? Isn't that how it works? And he says, no, no, let me show you. And he popped this x-ray up on a view box. And in the calf muscle of my leg, there's a floret pattern of what he says is bone tissue. He can tell on the x-ray uh, that these things are made of bone. It's the same density. Um, you know, the same, the same look, he says, he's sure it's bone tissue. And uh, they're arranged, like I said, in a, in a little flower pattern. You can see them. I think you've got copies of the x-rays. Mm -hmm. They're also at, at terrylovelace.com. Yeah. And um, I said, that's really strange. And he says, well, I got to tell you, he says, I, I, I've never seen muscle, pardon me, I've never seen bone tissue spontaneously sprout in the middle of a muscle before much less arrange themselves in a symmetrical pattern. So it's unheard of. I'm like, okay. So um, there was a little bit of, little bit of uh, weird stuff going on with my x-rays. I, uh, I wanted a copy of them. So I uh, filed the paperwork to get copies of my x-rays. I'm entitled to them by law. And um, I really think uh, I really think they kind of uh, jerked me around. Well, maybe hoping that I'd 
just go away or something. Because uh, it took me eight weeks to get them. Uh, and I had to go into the hospital to get them. Um, and I told them, you know, well, we know we got to find them. I said, well, you better find them because if you don't find them, I'm going to take you to the United States District Court in Dallas and I'm going to sue the hospital. And by gosh, they found them. <laughs> so I got a few copies and, um, but I don't have all the copies. Uh, they took 24 copies. They took 24 x-rays and I only have three or four. So I'd like to get my hands on the rest of those. But of course they say that they were discarded um, there was also an issue where I had an initial radiology report um, that described these objects as anomalies. Um, and they described them above and below my knee. Um, and uh, that radiology report, I was able to pull up. If, you're, if, you're, if you get your medical care from the VA, there's a portal called My Healthy Vet. And you can go there and you can pull up your charts, your medical records, your x-rays, your lab work, everything. So I, I wanted to see what the radiologist wrote in his report. Uh, the radiologist that wrote the report wasn't the same radiologist that I spoke with. I know that. And, uh, and that's okay. You know, they probably, you know, they, they look at the x-rays, they probably throw them in a big bin. And then uh, since it's not an emergency, some Somebody will read them and, and do course in a few days or a week and, and issue an official report. Um, but they had enough information to go on to make a diagnosis that they thought that I, I had a, um, a Baker cyst. Mm. And they gave me some crutches and Tylenol and said, you know, put up with it two weeks, you'll be fine. And then and, and, and that was right. That, that, that's the way it happened. But that uh, first radiology report, I didn't have a printer working at the time, so I couldn't print it. And I went back to look at it again uh, when I got a printer and it had changed. It was a different radiology report from a different doctor and the date was different. And um, I did some healthcare law uh, in my, when I was a civil servant. And I, uh, I know that if you're going to issue a second radiology report, it has to be marked as a second or an amended you have to somehow indicate that this is a second report that, you know, there is a first one out there somewhere. Um, and that wasn't done. And that's a violation of uh, centers for Medicare, Medicaid have, you know, rules you got to follow and uh, not supposed to do it that way. Right. So, but the second report had no mention of these anomalies. My second report was limited to, Rule out Baker cyst diagnosis abnormal knee. Um, so, you know, then it hit me. Yeah, these guys are part of the federal government. You know, maybe they maybe probably they they've seen it before and are covering their tracks. Yeah, that, could, that sure could be. I can't accuse anybody of anything, but I can I can say I can assume that I can I can guess at that. Yeah. So, who knows? So, stuff. so what was the implant for, do you think? Was it just a tracking device? Was it, what, what do you think it was? And, and do you still have it? You know, here's, yeah, here's, there's a little bit of a backstory to that. Um, the things below my leg, 
that are the florid pattern of bone, those are still there. Mm-hmm. A surgeon will not take those out um, because they're benign and they're bone tissue. They're human tissue. There's no reason to remove them. So those are there and they'll stay there. Um, the problem that I had was when, as soon as I saw these things, I thought, man, I want this out of my body like yesterday. Right. So I have a, I have a heart, I have some heart issues. I had a heart attack in 2005, 2011, um, you know, a quadruple bypass and I, I have heart disease. And, um, I went to see a, a VA surgeon and uh, he had my x-rays on his laptop. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, I got these foreign objects in my leg. I'd like them removed. And he explained, well, I can't remove these, the bone. He said, weird as it is. Uh, he said, I, I, I can't touch those. But he said, the uh, man-made object above your knee, uh, I'd be happy to take out for you. As a matter of fact, he said, yeah, I'd love to see it. So I'm like, great. And he says, but, you know, you got a cardiac history. You need to get me a cardiac clearance letter. And he said, just go see your cardiologist. Tell them, you know, look at your x-rays that you talked to me. He gave me a business card and said, I'm gonna, I want to do the surgery. And I will, uh, if they have questions, they can talk to me. But I'd like to take these out for you. And I established, I said, look, if we're going to do this, I want it done under a forensic protocol, like you were removing a bullet from a body. I want it there to be a chain of custody that shows that it went from your hands to a sealed envelope that you sign and date, you know, the same protocol you'd use if you were taking a bullet out of somebody in a murder for a murder trial or, you know, assault trial or something. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know how to do that. I know how to do that. So um, I uh, went to see my cardiologist and I said, yeah, I want this thing out of my leg. And she was always like, you know, well, do you got a scar? She wanted to see my leg. And, you know, how did this thing get in your leg? I'm like, you know, hey, lady, you tell me. I don't know. Um, and she says, well, I got to, you have a problem. And that is that because of your heart disease, she says, look, I got, I got half a million vets out there that are walking around with chunks of metal in their legs from Vietnam, from Iraq, uh, you know, and, and they all, they want all the, all of them want that metal out of their body yesterday too. Um, but the standard of care in this country is that if what's in your body has been there for years, and it looks like this stuff has been with you for a long time, the standard of care is if it's benign, we leave it lay. If it's not causing you a problem. And uh, she said, that's the standard of care. And I said, well, why? I said, it's a simple operation. She says, yes, but it's a risk benefit analysis. She said, think about it. You know, right now these things are doing you no harm and uh, we're going to put you under anesthesia and expose you to a risk of infection uh, to take out something that's benign. And uh, I mean, I wasn't going to lie. I couldn't lie and say, Oh my God, this thing's killing me. Take it out of my leg. I just (laughs) can't do that. You know? So, uh, I saw five cardiologists, three within the VA system and two on my own dime uh, that were civilian. Nobody would give me a cardiac clearance letter, not with my heart problems. So I, uh, I woke up, and this is crazy, true. Uh, and I described this in my first book. I woke up in my living room. And this is going to get a little out there, Gary. Uh, I know. 
but this is what happened. I woke up in my living room somewhere around three o'clock in the morning and uh, I opened my eyes and I'm, I'm surprised to see that I'm there because I last thing I knew I was in bed and I've never sleepwalked not one day in my life. And uh, how I got there, I have no clue. I don't remember walking down that hallway, I, I, but I'm there. And uh, first thing I did was I glanced at the alarm system. It's set. It's fine. I glanced over to see the cat is on the windowsill and she's all chill, you know, just stretching and doing what cats do. Uh, Seated directly across from me is what I thought was a petite Asian woman dressed in black, uh, black, like blouse with long sleeves, four long fingers sticking out of it. Um, maybe about four feet in height, very tiny. Um, and she had on what looked like a cheap costume wig and a pair of black oversized sunglasses. Um, and I mean, this woman at first glance probably could have walked down the street in Dallas and not get a second look, but um, I could see the this was not a human being. Right. And because the back of her head is bulbous, her head is big. And this wig that she was wearing was made for a human head. And it's kind of uh, really just sitting on top of her head and it looked ridiculous. And the arms of the sunglasses are tucked underneath the, uh, the wig because she has no ears. And my first thought was, my first thought was I wish she'd remove those glasses. Now I'm in some kind of trance, like I'm, I'm like I was in 1977 when we were under their influence and I was just uh, sedated, semi-sedated. And that's, the, that's what I was, that's the state that I was in, semi-sedated. Uh, I was relaxed. I wasn't freaked out. I had this woman sitting across from me in my home in the middle of the night. Um, she was sitting in a non-threatening posture with her legs crossed. And uh, like I said, my first thought was, I wish she'd take off those glasses. It, it wasn't, why, what are you doing in my house? I mean, I did, ask, <laughs> I did think that later, but my first thought was take off those glasses. And she did right on cue. She took them right off. And my next thought, because we don't control our thoughts. We may think we do, but we don't. And, uh, and there's a good reason why we don't, as human beings, communicate telepathically. Um, and I, I realized pretty quick that we were communicating telepathically. And it seemed perfectly natural. And I heard her in my head with crystal clarity. Moreover, when she took off those sunglasses, I recognized her. I knew her. This was a being that I used to see when I was a kid. When they used to take me as a little kid. Um, I, I would see her then uh, when they took me when I was between four and seven. And uh, they used to take me and I would be in this room full of kids somewhere. And it'd always be the same kids. And it wasn't kids from the neighborhood. It was just uh, the same group of kids. And um, I knew her. Not only did I know her, um, I felt an affection for her. Um, not, not, not in a romantic way, but, but in kind of a maternal way. Mm -hmm. 
And she hadn't aged a bit since I saw her the last time. Um, and she said to me, um, well, first of all, she, uh, I thought, you know, we're speaking telepathically. What if I think of something that offends her or makes her angry? You know, and then I thought, what if I think of something inappropriate? Well, you know, you know what that led to. I mean, you know, uh, tell tell a group of fourth graders, you know, don't think about elephants. And what are they going to think about for the next hour? And a half? <laughs> elephants, right? right? So I'm embarrassed to admit this, but <clears throat> all kinds of inappropriate things flashed across my mind. I could I could not control it. And mm -hmm. um, I think I embarrassed her. I really do. And she said to me, Terry, you can control some of your thoughts if you just try. And uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if she said that, you know, to put me at ease or if that's true. I just, I don't know. Um, but I did try to relax and I did, was able to focus. And, um, and then I was able to pose a question to her. What, why are you here? Is this about the things in my leg? And she's like, yes. And I, I said, well, what do they do? What purpose do they serve? And she dodged the question and said they serve many purposes. Well, no kidding. Um, and then uh, I said, why are you here? Uh, and we exchanged some pleasantries, too. She said, it's mm -hmm. nice to see you again. And I said, it's nice to see you again. And um, she said, the thing that's in your leg, uh, the thing that's above your leg, um, my host, H-O-S-T-S, will not allow you to have it removed and have it in the hands of terrestrial scientists. They won't let, they won't allow that to happen. And I was kind of puzzled by the word host because the word host, H-O-S-T-S can be a noun. It can be a verb. You know, you can host a dinner party or you can be the host of a dinner party mm -hmm. or you can be the host in a parasitic symbiotic relationship. Right. So the word has a lot of meanings. And I said, when you say host, what exactly do you mean? Who are you talking about? And she said, you call them aliens. I call them my host. And, I, and she said, because they're not alien to me. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of poetic. Um, but that's what she said. And she said that if you, because I, I was... At this time, in October of 2017, I was talking to a uh, surgeon in Tijuana. And, you know, the, the standard of care is different in Mexico than it is in the United States. Yeah. And uh, he said, sure. I sent, him, I sent him photocopies of my x-rays on uh, copy paper. And he was all excited. He's, he's, yeah, I'll take these out. Sure, I want to see what they are. Uh, but he also said he wouldn't take the bones out of my leg. Mm -hmm. Bones are there. They belong there. He said, they're freakish. I don't know what they are, but, you know, I, I won't take those out for you. Uh, but the electronic device, he called it, I will take out. Now, curiously, I went to law school with a guy um, who is retired, but he worked for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And uh, we were pretty good friends. We talked once a year, maybe twice a year. Um, and I told him the story. And uh, I sent him a copy of the x-rays because... Uh, the BATF, believe it or not, has the world's largest database of electronic um, 
instruments and devices, transistors, resistors, capacitors, all that stuff. Every single item that's manufactured anywhere in the world goes in their database. And I didn't know that. And I said, well, well, why do you have that? What's the reason for that? And he says, well, it goes back to Lockerbie, Scotland. Whenever that, uh, that plane, there was a bomb aboard that plane and it went down over Lockerbie, Scotland, killed 300 people. Um, that play, that uh, We found that that uh, device, that uh, explosive device was detonated by a radio bought in Pakistan. Um, so whenever we investigate a, uh, an explosion, uh, we always look for tiny pieces because they, they normally survive the uh, blast. You know, the little capacitors and little chips and stuff that they put in electrical devices, they can identify a device based on that. The thing that's in my knee is not in their database. So um, I don't think it was manufactured on this planet. I mean, that's a conclusion I've reached. Yeah. So she said, you know, don't have it taken out. Um, because if you do, if you continue with your plans, uh, my host will remove it in the middle of the night. They won't allow that to happen. And um, that was it. She was gone. And I, uh, you know, went back to bed. And I didn't think it was a dream. I thought it really happened. And I told my wife, this this lady appeared in our living room and said, she's, you know, if I continue to have the surgery with this, you know, Dr. Nunez, she's going to have her, her aliens are going to come and take this thing out of your leg. Now, my wife's been pretty understanding for about 47 years, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but she, you know, she's like, you know, that, that, that might just have been a dream. And I'm like, you know, I don't think so. Well, three weeks later on November 17th, I woke up in a lot of pain and I had a hole in the top of my leg. Um, it was a weird puncture wound uh, and I had one on each leg and it occurred to me, I'd never had my left leg x-rayed. I wish I had, I never thought of it, but I had two deep puncture wounds, one on each, at the top of each thigh. And you know, this, this thing in my leg was down by my knee, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't know. My wife made the point that we don't know how far up your leg those wires may have gone. So who knows? Um, we don't know how they got it in. We don't know how they took it out. Uh, I got pictures in the book. I've, and they're on the, my website, I believe. Yeah, I've seen and, them. Uh, yeah, because what happened was, um, originally it was just a puncture wound. And about 36 hours later, the bruising, that weird bruising mm-hmm. pattern came out. And, uh, you know what's strange is that bruising pattern kind of looks like the same, the same pattern that's in the, uh, in the florette and the arrangement of bone things in, in my calf bustle. It's kind of the same image. Uh, anyway, yeah. So I told my wife, I said, I think they came and they got this thing out of, took this thing out of my leg last night. And she says, well, if you think that, go get an x-ray and prove it. So I thought, okay. Because uh, I knew I couldn't walk into just a freestanding radiology clinic and say, hey, I need an x-ray on my leg. Yeah. So uh, I went to a chiropractor's office. Because I thought, you know, these guys, they, they, they take x-rays, look at them all day long. I didn't have an appointment, so I waited in line. And a guy calls me back. And uh, I took with me copies of my x-rays on copy paper to show them. And I had them rolled up in a tube in my hand. 
And he called me back in the back and he said, uh, you know, and he's very, very busy. What can I do for you? I said, well, I hurt. Where do you hurt? Show me. Were you in a car? Were you in a car accident? No, I wasn't in a car accident. And um, I dropped my pants a little bit. And he's like, how did you get these puncture wounds? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I woke up with them. I had no idea. And um, he looked at me like he didn't believe me. And um, he said, well, what is it that you're looking for? And I said, I'm looking for an x-ray. And I said, doctor, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to come to the point and I'm going to tell you the truth. And that is that I believe in 1977, I was abducted by aliens. And I think they implanted a thing in my leg. And I think they came and took it out last night. And he was like, well, all right, then. Um, I don't think we can help you. And he's got me by the elbow. And he's very politely leading me toward the door. And uh, I said, look, I know that's hard to believe. And uh, what I did was I held those two pieces of paper up in front of his face. Mm -hmm. And uh, about three feet from the door, he stopped. And he took the papers from my hand and he looked at them. And he says, come on back. And he took me into his office and he shut the door. And, uh, and it, was, it was crazy. People are knocking at his door. His phone is ringing. And I sit down in front of his desk and he puts the, my copies in front of me. And he says, tell me about these. Give me a three-minute version. And I said, you know, I only need 90 seconds. I told you the backstory already. Uh, that's, that's what happened. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. Um, and then he said, uh, well, I don't have x-ray equipment here. We use a clinic down the street. It's a mile down the street. He gave me the name of it. And, uh, and I told him I was writing a book. And he said, uh, well... Tell you what, he said, I'll order your x-ray. I'll pay for your x-ray. Um, but I want to see the x-ray. And I want you to promise me you won't use my name or the name of my clinic. And, I, and I've kept that promise. Mm -hmm. So I went to this radiology off, radiology clinic down the, down the way. And they took x-rays on my leg and uh, handed them to me. And uh, as soon as I got in the car, I pulled them out and uh, held one up to the windshield and there was enough light I could see. There was plenty of light I could see clearly that that thing was gone. And I thought, hmm, you know, and I, uh, you know, here I've spent, you know, five years wanting this thing out of my leg. Now that it's gone, I can't explain it, but I feel bad. You know, I don't feel, I don't feel uh, happy or uh, uh, it's just odd emotion. Right. Because you wanted it out to see what it is. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to possess it. You know, I wanted yeah. to own it. I didn't want them to take it away. <laughs> so I dropped the x-rays off at his office. And um, he called me up at dinner that night. And he said, well, I guess you saw your x-rays. And I said, yeah, I see it's gone. And he says, well, did you see they left you something? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, come by my clinic tomorrow. I'll show you. Um, and he said, there, there are two tiny wires left in your body. They're right parallel with your femur at mid-thigh, um, just right, right near the bone. And I'm confused. And I said, well, doctor, let me ask you this. If these things are so intelligent, how could they be so careless as to leave two wires in my body? And he says, you don't get it. They don't do anything by accident. Um, he says, what they did was they gave you an upgrade. And he said, that's... That's probably the 2017 version of the 1977 model they took out of you. 
And I said, well, would, you know, these are just two tiny wires. He said, yeah, well, think about it. He says, their technology probably advances faster than ours. Look how, we've, how far we've come since 1977, miniaturizing things and the like. He says, those two tiny wires probably do everything that that other thing did. And he said, that's the way they are. And I asked him, I said, doctor, are you an experiencer? Have you had this happen? And he said, well, I don't discuss that. But he said, I believe you. And I believe this happened to you. And I, and I thanked him very much for the x-ray. And uh, I went to the office. He showed them to me on, on, the, on, the, on his view box. And uh, he gave me the x-rays. They're mine. Uh, mm -hmm. I got them in my drawer here. As a matter of fact, a copy, it's not, it doesn't turn up real legible on a black and white uh, uh, picture in the back of my book. Um, but you can see there's a, like a little white streak with a circle drawn around it. Mm -hmm. Those are two par tiny parallel wires. Uh, if you look at it on x-ray film with a good light source, you can see there are actually two real tiny wires, maybe a centimeter long, uh, parallel with one another. And one of the wires is kind of bent on the end. Um, but they're definitely there and they're still there today. Hmm. So, and I have no plans to have them removed. <laughs> Interesting. So what do you think it is they're studying about us? You know, um, like, what is their interest? Like, why would they be interested in a primitive species like us? Like, I have my own theory because I've interviewed other, you know, abductees, and I think it has something to do with reproduction. I think that's a good guess. Um, you know, what I did was in the back of Incident at Devil's Den, I have a, an email address, and I said, Look, if you've had an experience, you know, write to me and tell me about it. And I've had these 1,500 and some people to date write to me uh, in an email. And, um, you know, some of them are very poignant. Some of them are very, um, you know, I've never shared this with another human being in my life. Um, you know, and something about reading your story triggered a memory from when I was a child. Uh, I had a lot of those. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I saw little circus monkeys in my room. I don't think we talked about that. No. Um, yeah, they, I saw these little circus monkeys in my room. And, you know, these, these letters or emails that I got from people, I've had people write to me and say that when they were children, when they were four, five, six years old, they had, uh, a lot of them say, they had this vivid dream about uh, uh, little clowns in their room, orbs, owls, uh, little gray beings, um, one kid from El Paso, uh, who's in in the back of my second book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, what I did was I took, um, there are about 400 of these stories that are really, really good. Um, and I'd like to give you an example here in a minute. Um, but what I did was I, I boiled them down and I took 50 of the very best. Uh, and I talked to the people and uh, got their permission to share their story. And, um, um, you know, I, I put those 30 stories in the back of the book and they, they are, they are some unbelievable stories, but, um, 
Yeah, I saw little monkeys, uh, like circus monkeys. But you know, the trick is this. I think that these things can appear in a way that the child will think is most benign, the least threatening, you know. Uh, one lady said she saw um, Disney characters in her room that would talk to her. Uh, this kid from El Paso was six, and uh, we had a little bit of a language barrier. Um, but I have a friend who speaks Spanish fluently, and she was able to help me. And uh, this poor kid, uh, he knew what a possum was. And uh, I asked him, well, where have you seen a possum before? And he said, I've seen them dead on the road, and I know what they are. And I know that they're living things. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of did this thing like I... You know, if I had a kid on a witness stand, I would kind of do this kind of thing where I would say, you know, and you know the difference between uh, telling the truth and telling a lie. Yes, I do. And if I said it was snowing outside right now, would that be the truth or would that be a lie? Uh, well, that would be a lie or that would be a tr whatever, whatever the word it was. Um, but, you know, get the idea that the kid understands the difference between telling fairy tale and telling the truth. And I think this kid was telling me the truth. Um, his mother had seen balls of light. They lived in a, in, a, in a mobile home in El Paso. And when she would see a ball of light pass through his screen window in his room, and she was, he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night. And uh, um, she had placed the couch in the living room at an angle where she could watch television and sleep in that room and keep an eye on her son in case you know he freaked out at night had a nightmare whatever and uh and she saw this ball of light come through and this orb of light come through the screen and kind of swing around the room and then exit again and this kid told me um that a possum would appear in his room and this possum would stand on two legs like a man and spoke to him uh, in Spanish and uh, asked him questions. And I said, well, what did he ask you? What, the, what did you talk about? And he's like, I don't really remember. Uh, uh, one thing he said that was significant is uh, this possum asked him, you know, do you want to come play with us? And the kid said, I think I said no. And that rang a bell with me because these, these little monkey things that used to come and bother me um, when I was a kid uh, used to ask me the same question. So I don't know. I think it's a, it's a much more common phenomenon than what we think. I mean, I had no, no desire to become, a, probably like yourself, I didn't see myself becoming a UFO investigator. Right or an investigator of paranormal things, but uh, I've kind of come into that role by accident. And um, people have some amazing stories to tell. Hmm. I'm gonna, so, so you do think it's reproduction now, because that they, they're using us for? I think there's a component in that. And I think that there is definitely a hybridization program and I'll tell you why I think that. I had probably a half dozen women email me. Uh, I have two or three of them 
in that in that list of 30 stories, there's two or three women in there that uh, one of them is Erin Montgomery. Um, I've interviewed her. So you know Erin's story. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Erin and I met in Roswell in 2018 when I was there. Uh, and uh, I've kind of been friends ever since. Um, and, uh, you know, that this phenomena about uh, women that wake up, you know, they go to bed and they know that they're pregnant. And they're in their eighth or ninth or tenth week. And then they wake up the next morning and they know that they're not pregnant. Yes. And then not only do they know that they're not pregnant, but like this, this lady from uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri told me, you know, she, uh, she just broke down. Her husband took her to the hospital. She was crying, you know, I, you know, at the loss and they get to the hospital and uh, she says, uh, I got, I'm pregnant. I got, and her, her medical doc, her, OBGYN doc wasn't there at the hospital, but the doctor at the hospital knew her OBGYN doctor and called her and they exchanged notes and he knew that she should have been pregnant. And there's no way, according to her, that you can lose a fetus like this without there being some kind of telltale sign. You know, um, normally there's, there's clots of blood. There's, uh, it's kind of a messy affair. What's called a DNC, militation mm-hmm. uh, and creation of something. Uh, um, nurses call it a dusting and cleaning, but it's uh, a DNC. Uh, she didn't need one. Um, so there was no evidence. Not only was there no evidence that she'd lost the fetus, but there was no evidence that she'd ever... Uh, been pregnant yeah yeah there's a lot of common and one of the other common themes that's jumped out to me is when you mentioned the asian looking alien in your living room that said that it knew you you know you knew it throughout your entire life she also had one that same experience where like one was like sort of like her hand or yeah, she called her her handler. Yeah. You know, I know a couple other people in the UFO community that are experiencers, and uh, they also, coincidentally, they also use that word, handler. Mm-hmm. That word's never crossed my mind. I don't have a name for Betty, really. I don't know. I, I just call her Betty. You know what I called her? I called, When I was a kid, I called her Sue. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she looked like the Asian woman named we all called all those neighborhood kids. We called her Sue that lived in back of us. Um, who was Japanese, married to an American GI. All right. Um, and she reminded me, you know, of Sue. I called her Betty when she appeared in my living room in 2017 um, because of this uh, ridiculous wig that she was wearing. <laughs> That reminded me of Betty Rubble. I know mm-hmm. that sounds flip, but you know that's that's the truth. <laughs> uh, so you know Betty and Sue are one in the same one yeah. in the same entity. But mm. yeah, reproduction. This is going to sound odd too, um, and but I'm beginning to think. You know, I've talked to Ray Hernandez. I've done a lot of reading and. Uh, on one hand, there is a um, 
maybe it's good, you know, good alien, bad alien. I don't know. Um, I don't believe that all aliens are bad. Um, but the flip side of that is I don't believe for a minute that they're all good either. I think that we're being visited by who knows how many different, different um, varieties of alien beings. I, I think too that there is, um, you know, the guys from TTSA to the Stars Academy. Oh yeah, uh huh. Um, I published my book in March of 2018, and in April, I got a call on my cell phone uh, from Tom DeLong, and he says, um, "Carrie, I said, yeah." And he says, "Hi, it's Tom DeLong." And I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I, I I should have. I mean, my, my daughter played one of his songs at my daughter's wedding. And uh, um, but at the moment I, I was just like, well, well, hi Tom, nice to hear from you. You know, <laughs> he says, Well, I'm here with Lou Elizondo, uh, and a couple other people, uh, maybe Steve Justice. Um, he says, Well, I'll talk to you about the things in your leg. I'm like, okay. Um, and uh, they sent a doctor down to see me a couple months later. Um, I won't mention his name because he was very kind to me and asked me not to. Um, uh, but he was able to get a fresh set of x-rays and triangulate the things in my leg and verify that, uh, you know, that they, they are there and document the depth that they're there. And... Uh, you know, kind of validate things for me. And uh, he spent two days with me and uh, had me go through every my bit of minutia regarding my story, everything that happened to me since I was a child. And uh, he took meticulous notes. And uh, I said, you know, I, I would start with a disclaimer now. This is going to sound crazy. This is going to sound weird. And he's like, look, you know, you stop saying that. <laughs> I've heard this before. You know, you're not unique. Uh, other people have had this too. So don't worry about it. Just tell me what I need to know. And uh, so I did. I quit apologizing. And, uh, you know, I told him some pretty crazy things. And uh, he didn't He didn't bat an eyelash. Um, you know, um it was interesting. I had uh, helicopters. Now, I know this sounds cliche, too, but I, but I had the evidence. I had 168 photographs of helicopters taken over my house beginning in about April of 2018 through June of the following year. Uh, when we moved, <laughs> sold my house and moved. Um, and that began kind of as a joke. I mean, about April 2018, uh, just shortly after Tom DeLong called me, uh, and I don't think there's any connection there, but shortly after Tom called me, I'd hear these uh, between, between uh, 9 and 11 o'clock in the morning, about three times a week, my wife and I would hear this, you know, the rotor thing that thump, 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 thump. I mean, typical uh, helicopter noise. But at that time in the morning, when you walked out my front door, I had a big tree in my front yard that um, kind of hit everything 
to the left, and then I had the morning sun in my face to the right. So my field of vision was limited to about 180 degrees in back of me. And these helicopters would fly either from around the tree or out of the sun, and they would come and just do a big donut over my house. Um, so I decided I'm going to find out who owns these things and started taking photographs of them. And then I would blow up the photographs and uh, I discovered that there were three kinds of helicopters. I have a friend, Dr. Bruce Solheim. I don't know if he's been on your show or not. He'd make no. a great guest. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bruce Solheim, um, he's a history professor at Citrus College in Glendora, California. Uh, he's been a, a psychic all of his life. Uh, but, you know, just like I, I worked in the law and I couldn't share my experiences. Well, he's worked in academia all his life. And, mm. uh, you know, if you want to make tenure and, and get along, you don't uh, you don't share that stuff right. kind of things. So uh, he's my age. He waited until, uh, you know, he's just about ready to retire. And, uh, he told the, uh, the board of regents or whatever they call the managing entity of the of the uh, college that he was going to publish a book. Uh, which he did called Timeless Esoterica. Um, it was actually published three now. But he said, look, I want you guys to know this because you're going to hear about it probably. And that is I'm a psychic. I've been a psychic just like my mom since I was a little kid. And I wrote a book about it. And uh, I'm going to publish it. And, you know, he's written probably 10 history books mm -hmm. and, you know, numerous scholarly papers. Um, and uh, he said, well, the, the Board of Regents kind of said, well, you know, we're going to think about it. We'll get back to you. And uh, they got back to him and offered to let him teach a class on paranormal awesome. in the evening division. How cool is that? That is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So he does. He'd make a cool guest. So I'm just going to bring him up. Yeah. But I also bring him up because he was an Army helicopter pilot. Mm -hmm. And he's married to a helicopter instructor. His wife, uh, uh Flies helicopters and worked as a as a helicopter uh, instructor. So I had 168 photographs of helicopters, um, and I sent the pictures to him, and he broke them down for me. And they fell into three classes. They were civilian R for Robertson Robertson R22 and R44 um, helicopters. One the 22s are two seaters. The 44s obviously seat four people. The other kind was an Airbus 350, which is the same helicopter that the Texas State Police use. Um, and then the rest were all military, uh, all olive drab or black, um, and, 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 assorted, and assorted flavors, you know, various types. Um, and uh, not a single mark on them. You know, I mean, the first thing I did uh, I'd blow them up on a big monitor to look for some kind of identifier so I could complain that, you know, hey, guys, knock it off. Um, and then I, I, you know, I did what I know how to do, and I looked up the law. And uh, the law, uh, codified Federal Regulation 45, I think is what it is, uh, states that a helicopter has to display an alphabetical symbol in like in Nancy, just like mm -hmm. aircraft do. And that's followed by a sequence of numbers that identify that particular craft. 
and it goes through the statute says you must do it. It must be visible. It must be this height and width and all this stuff. And then at the very bottom of the statute, it said exemptions, military aircraft and certain certain agency uh, aircraft. So the reason they weren't marked is they were either from the military or some certain agency. Mm. Some type of black ops. Yeah. You know, if, if you look at the Dallas Morning News, I think it was March 19th, uh, but you could find it. In the Dallas Morning News, there is a paper, a newspaper article. Um, it's in my uh, PowerPoint presentation. Um, but the, the article says, it's not front page, it's in the back of, in the back of the paper, but it's a full headline. And it shows a picture of a military helicopter, and it says in big, bold letters, why are there so many military helicopters over Dallas? And then you read the first paragraph of the article, and it says, why are there so many military helicopters over the city of Garland? I live in Garland, and mm -hmm. that's a little community, uh, a little suburb that abuts, you know, it's adjacent to, connected to Dallas, um, which is southeast, pardon me, northeast of Dallas. So um, I know I know why because they're all over my house. You know? <laughs> so uh, Lou Elizondo, uh, I called Lou Elizondo because uh, I had talked to him before and he was very kind. And I said, and I got these you know helicopters like crazy over my house. If you want to see them, uh, you're welcome to come out. And uh, and he said, yeah. He says, you know, I, I want to come out and film you anyway, uh, not for his not for his television program, but just for documentary purposes for TTSA. Right. I'm like, sure, no worries. Uh, so he and his cameraman uh, flew out to see me and, and spent two days with me in June of 2019. And uh, of course, the day that he came, he was there for two days. Uh, never saw a helicopter, not one. <laughs> um, but we had some interesting times. I mean, he right. filmed me and... Uh, I have had, um, throughout my life, we have, my wife and I are used to it, uh, poltergeist type stuff happen. Mm -hmm. You know, the TV will turn on at two o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> and uh, that doesn't even wake us out anymore. We just get up and go turn it off and go back to bed. Yeah. You know, and say out loud, you know, hey, I'm trying to sleep here. You want to knock it off? You know, I, I was talking to somebody last week I was doing an interview and the interview was about disclosure and he was telling me that the government within the next two years is going to disclose to the public what is going on or at least the you know what is going on with the UFOs and the aliens and that Lou is a part of that disclosure Yeah, yeah. You, th you think I, I, there's I truth to that? I wouldn't express an opinion. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I could speculate all day long. Yeah. You know, I think I think Lou Elizondo is a uh, man of integrity. Yeah, him, Chris Mellon. Yes, Steve Justice, um, Hal Puda. Yeah, good people. Um, you know, something's up. Um, I'll say this. Uh, there was an article 
dated December 8th of uh, 2020, published in the uh, Jerusalem Post. I read it. Uh, dated oh, it yes, yes, I know you're talking about. Hayim Ashed. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got friends in Tel Aviv, and I and I called him up and I said, hey, what's the deal with Hayim Ashed? Is he... Uh, is he a kook? Is he a um, straight-up guy? What's what's the deal? And they're like, oh, well, he's like our Buzz Aldrin, you know? He's not <laughs> well-respected guy. He's not uh, he's not crazy. He's a well-respected guy. And he, he said, uh, for those who are listening who may not have heard, that the United States and Israel are parties to a treaty, if you will, with... Uh, what he, what he called a galactic federation, meaning exactly what it sounds like. Uh, entities from different galaxies come together and form an alliance. And um, they're here and they're in an agreement with the United States and with Israel. And that agreement uh, is secret, obviously. And um, he said that Donald Trump had planned to make full disclosure and release that information to the public and that it was E.T. that dissuaded him, that changed his mind and convinced him not to do that. Now, you know, I read that article closely and when I read something like that, I like to pick it apart word by word and I like to read it about nine times to make sure I understand it. Mm -hmm. And there were five words in that article that really stood out to me. And they were, uh, it was this. He said that disclosure was not a good idea now and it can't happen right now. And it can't happen until humanity understands, here it comes, the nature of space and spaceships. Those words, the nature of space and spaceships. Now, what, what could be so alarming about the nature of space and spaceships that it has to be held secret or they're afraid that, you know, there'll be riots in Tokyo and New York city or something. Uh, and, and why is it that, um, you know, there's a 180 day wait until disclosure, you know, yeah, we're going to give you disclosure, but you got to wait 180 days. We'll tell you in June, maybe what's going to change between now and June. It's going to make us more able to accept more, more accepting of that. Uh, why can't they just tell us now? Right. That's so it's a good question. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, it's possible, um, that, uh, and this is going to sound way out there. Like, you know, like everything else I've had to say, um, but in my meditative practice, and I've been pretty diligent about doing that, um, I think there's mental health and just general health benefits to it. And um, I don't know where it comes from, but I'm beginning to wonder if the ship that I was on may have been alive, that the ship itself may have been a living uh -huh. This is something that I have considered myself that that these vehicles are organic. Yeah. I think that's right. 
I, I really do. I think it, I think so too. And, and I've also heard from other people that I've interviewed that have been on these shifts that there's like this organic aspect to it where it feels like it's alive. You know, I never felt that. I felt like I was on, uh, you know, something made of nuts and bolts in a factory. Mm. I mean, not Boeing, obviously, but, you know, it was put together somewhere. Um, but, you know, then in retrospect, I think, you know, that's the way I view things. You know, right. that's my reality. But, you know, I never saw a light fixture, but there was light all over the place. Right. Yeah, I've heard, and I've heard that too. Like the there, there's light, but there's no source for the light. And you know what else? The inside of it was bigger than the outside. Now, how do they, how does that work? You know, do they have a different set of physics? Did they take us somewhere else? I don't think they did. I think that the thing is bigger inside than it is outside. Wow. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what we're dealing with. You left me with a lot of questions, man. You're going to have to come back again. <laughs> you have to. Well, you know what? I didn't get a chance to talk about Devil's Den, The Reckoning, and I wanted to tell you these stories. I don't know how you're doing on time, but uh, I would be happy to come back anytime. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's so much more to cover. There really is. There's a lot to talk about. And it's all timely. This is all stuff that is in the news and it's stuff that we're all going to be dealing with. So hmm. it's, it's relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll set that up with Michelle. Yeah. Maybe I can bring it back for a couple more shows, really get in depth with some of this. Yeah. And you know what you can, uh, I, I was going to say, I can save you the, save you the trouble. You can just email me. Uh, that way I can look at my calendar. Okay. So, I mean, unless you're, unless you're tight with Michelle and you'd rather do it that way, that's fine too. Well, I know Michelle likes me to do it through her. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Sure. All right. yeah, I'd be happy to come back anytime. So before we wrap it up one more time, where can my listeners find you? Uh, they can find me on Facebook at Incident at Devil's Den or Terry Lovelace or Devil's Den Radio podcast, something. I have three channel three uh, on uh, on uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, my books are for sale on Amazon. Uh, the first one is Incident at Devil's Den, uh, a true story by Terry Lovelace, uh, and that has the x-rays and the pictures in it. That's available in paperback, in Kindle, and it's also available in an audiobook. I made an audiobook uh, where I sat down at a studio and just read the book. Oh, yeah. Uh, People like those now. Yeah. I, you know what? Uh, I, I sell probably two to one of those than I do books. Wow. And I thought, you know, I would have had to hire a voice artist or something. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, I, I can't afford that. I, you know, I can read it myself. Besides, I kind of wanted to read it myself. I wanted it to be in my words. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning is in uh, uh, Kindle and paperback right now. And I'm, uh, I'm working on an audio book. That'll be out by May. Um, so, yeah. 
go to Amazon, take a look at my books. Devil's Den has over 500 reviews, like four, seven out of five. So something in the book resonates with people. And, uh, you know, if you want to email me, my email address is terrylovelace at yahoo.com. Um, I, I try my best to answer everybody. I get 60 emails a day, but I'm glad to get them. So, you know, if you want to talk to me, uh, shoot me an email. That's great. I want to post all that notes to this episode so my listeners can find you, buy your books, and reach out to you if they have any stories to share. Yeah, that would be great. Great. Great talking to people. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely going to be doing this again. All right. All right, dear. All right. So just hang on one second, and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.